we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to the universe next door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. This show is a ministry of the C.S. Lewis Society and supported by gifts of listeners just like you. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is The Universe Next Door. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. This is Nick Shalna. Uh, and today we're going to be continuing our series in Romans 9 through 11. Uh, I will link the episodes in the description we've already done. We did one on predestination and foreknowledge, and then we did an episode on Romans 9. We also touched on it in a few uh, Q&As, but basically I'll I'll put those down in the description below so you can check those out. Uh, And we're going to continue today with the topic of what election is uh, from a biblical standpoint. And it's it's used in a couple different ways, but um, we're going to talk about what election is, and we're also going to talk about what election isn't. Um, so before we get into that, just make sure you hit follow, and that way you're always alerted when an episode comes out. So whether you're on Spotify, Apple, uh, whatever it may be, just hit follow. And I also wanted to thank those of you who not only listen to the show, but who support the show through both prayer and through giving. Uh, if you are interested in giving to support the Universe Next Door, there's a link down in the description below. You'll just see a Give button. Uh, if you hit that, it'll bring you right to the secure website where you can give. So thank you to those of you who do that. You uh, make the show possible and you are a huge blessing to us. So we're going to be talking about, uh, as I mentioned, both what election is and what election is not. Uh, And so what I'm disagreeing with, just so you don't, I'm not going to make you listen to the whole episode to find out what I think and don't think. um, But what I'm disagreeing with is the idea that election in the Bible means that God chooses some to be saved to the neglect of others. So I'm disagreeing with the idea that God chooses some to be saved to the neglect of others. Um, you'll you'll know if you've listened to the Romans 9 episode that um, I actually don't think Romans 9 really is about salvation. I think it's about Israel being elect to service. And so in Romans 9, Israel is God's elect people, or in other words, God's chosen people. So an election is a choice. Uh, Just like the presidential election, we are choosing who's going to win the election. Um, It's a choice. So God's electing someone is God choosing someone. So the question is not, does God choose anybody for anything? The word election is in scripture a, a number of times. The question is, what does it mean for God to choose someone? What does it mean for him to, to elect someone? Um, and so one of the things we have to keep in mind, and we're going to see this both in Romans, but also in these other places where we see the term elect. When God elects someone or when God elects a people, he always elects people to the blessing of others, not to the neglect of others. So when God elects someone, he does it to the blessing of others, not to the neglect of others. Um, an obvious example is when he elected Abraham to be the patriarch of Israel. Abraham was supposed to be not only the father of Israel, but Israel was supposed to bless all other nations. So all nations would be blessed through Abraham or Abram at the time. So him being chosen was not to the neglect of the other nations who God had disinherited at the Tower of Babel, uh, but his being chosen, his being elect was to bless all of the other nations. And you can look at every example in the Bible and see the same thing. 
Um, let's take, for example, Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is commissioned by God, it is to the blessing of others. He's going to warn Israel of what's going to come if they don't repent. And of course, if they do repent, we know that they're going to receive eternal life and they're going to be with God um, forever, for all of eternity. And so the, the, the apostles, you can continue on with the same story. Uh, the apostles are, are, are elected because they're going to be a blessing to the world as God's gathering the Gentiles back to himself, uh, though the gospel goes first to the Jews. So when someone or a group is elect, they are elect not to the neglect of others, but to the blessing of others. So we're going to look at some big picture ideas here. Uh, we're going to look at some of the most common passages that relate to election. I think this is probably going to be a two-part thing. Um, it'd probably just go on too long if we made this one episode. So I, I'm thinking this is going to be a two-part episode. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the most popular passages used um, to describe the kind of election that I disagree with. And I'm going to show why those passages actually mean kind of the opposite thing that many people think they mean. Uh, where the Reformed view or the Calvinist view would say that um, those who are elect are those who are irresistibly saved. They are chosen to be irresistibly saved, and the others are not chosen. They're neglected. So election in the Calvinist sense means that you are irresistibly chosen to be saved. Uh, but I'm going to show that the passage that are passages that are commonly used to say that, at least a handful of them, actually often say the the opposite. So we're going to start by kind of describing an overview of what's going on with the Jews and Gentiles. We're going to uh, we're going to look at a few passages that help us to understand that, and that also include election. And then I'll look at some specific passages uh, pertaining to election that are pretty popular. And before we start, uh, we're going to start with Matthew twenty. But before we do start, I just wanted to say, let's say you you are Reformed, you are a Calvinist, and you're listening. Um, I, I'm not your enemy. Most of my, I, I don't know if I'd say most, but a lot of my friends are Calvinists. A lot of my favorite pastors are Calvinists. I just disagree on some points, and this is one of them. Um, and so this, this is not an attack on you. And if you disagree with me, or if you think I'm misrepresenting something, or there's a passage where you're like, well, no, Nick, this is the real election passage. You missed it. You left it out. Email it to me. Send it to information at apologetics.org. Um, I will address it. I will answer it directly in the Q&A. So I'm not here to strawman your view. Uh, I'm not here to try to just use passages that I think are helpful. I'm actually using the passages that I've most heard talked about by guys like John Piper, guys like R.C. Sproul, people who I respect and honor and have learned a ton from, uh, but I disagree in this area. And so we, as Christians, should do that when we come across something in Scripture that we think some people might get wrong or even a large group of people might get wrong. Um, and we should be willing to not only address it, but correct it with true doctrine. And so if you disagree with me, send an email to information at apologetics.org and we'll get to it uh, in the Q&A in the, the, the last Friday of the month. And maybe I'll email you back too. We can just have a discussion or whatever, but feel free to do that. I'm not here to misrepresent you. So we're going to go to Matthew 20 and we're going to start right in the beginning of the uh right in the beginning of the chapter. I'm reading from the NIV right now. I'm pretty fond of the NIV. There's a number of verses or a number of translations I use pretty regularly, and I don't think you should just stick to one when you're studying scripture, of course, but I, I am pretty fond of the NIV, especially reading it out loud because it's pretty readable, but it's also not too paraphrased. And as you're getting to Matthew 20, um, I just wanted to remind you, we just did an episode on Jesus 
flipping the tables in the temple and why he truly did that. And we talked a lot about the relationship between Jew and Gentile, the common relationship, at least in the first century. So check that out and it'll help you a little bit here too. So Matthew 20, um, let's start with verse one. We're going to read the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Uh, He says, Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. So pause real quick. I just wanted to alert you that one of the keys here is morning. So the time he sent them out early in the morning, that's one of the keys here. Uh, Another key is, of course, denarius. He's getting a whole day's pay. So they're sent out early in the morning. They get a whole day's pay. Let's say $100 just for the sake of simplicity here. So he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon at about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. And about five in the afternoon, that's another key, the five in the afternoon, this is much later. He went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. That's important too. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and received each a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the owner or against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my money? Are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So in this parable, keep in mind that in the book of Matthew, uh, he's primarily, Matthew's primarily writing this gospel to the Jews. And we'll get into that a little bit in in, in a couple minutes, Uh, but it's structured to appeal to the Jews as we did in our episode uh, on genealogies. We did Jesus genealogy and toward the beginning of Matthew. Um, So I'll put that in the description too, but he's he's writing everything he's writing to appeal to Jewish people, to a Jewish audience. And so you have to keep that in mind here. But in this parable, you have these people who come early in the morning and they agree, let's just for the sake of simplicity, as I said, they agree that they're going to receive $100. So they get here early in the morning and they, they've agreed to receive $100 for working the whole day. Now, other people start to come a little bit later, people who are just standing around with nothing to do, no work to do, okay? So they start to come in and it's like they come at nine o'clock and then 12 o'clock and then three o'clock. Well, they're also still agreeing to the same amount. They're all going to receive $100, even though they worked for less amount of time. And now finally, you have people coming at five o'clock. That's just a couple hours before it gets dark at the latest time of the year. Okay, so you have people coming now at five o'clock and they're still receiving the same amount that the people who got there at six or seven in the morning are receiving for working all day long. And so they're upset at God. They're grumbling at God. They're saying, hey, what's this all about? How come they're getting just the same amount as as we are? We deserve more because we've been here longer. 
And he's saying, well, who are you to, <laughs> this is all going to sound very familiar with Romans 9, isn't it? He's saying, who are you to talk back to God? You're going you're, you're gonna to tell me what I have the right to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So what's going on here and why are we relating this uh, to Romans 9 and to what's going on in our series with Jew and Gentile? Well, the people who came early in the morning here represent the Jews, the people who were first, the ones who God has had out there the longest and, and working the longest. And so they think they have this sort of privilege for being out there the longest and being the first ones. They think they deserve more. And they're getting upset and they're grumbling uh, when the, when the let's say the Gentiles here, when the Gentiles show up at 5 p.m., right? They're here at the end of the day, but God still gives them the same amount. He gives them each $100 a day's pay. So while in Romans 9 through 11, we have the Jews grumbling and we have the Gentiles grumbling, um, and, and Paul addressing both of them sort of saying, well, you guys have nothing to grumble about because uh, to the Jews, God has given you everything you have. Sure, you, you were given all of these privileges and these blessings, but God gave them to you freely. He chose Jacob uh, over Esau before they had even done anything to serve Israel and to be Israel. And then he's telling the Jews, well, you have no reason to brag. You just got here. You were just grafted in. These guys were the foundation, so you have no reason to brag about anything. He's telling both of them they have no reason to brag. Now, of course, this parable in Matthew 20 is written to the Jews, so it's focused here on the Jewish side of it. Um, but the Jews in the first century, just like we saw in the last episode, um, the Jews want the Gentiles to focus or, or to worship in the outer courts. Um, they don't want them to have the same privileges and everything that the Jews have. And so that's the relationship and the tension going on. And in this parable, we can see that drawn out. But at the end, what God says is, do you think I'm being unfair? You agreed to what I'm giving you. And he says, I have the right to do what I want with my own money. Or are you envious because I am generous? So the key here is not only the complaints that are coming in, that the guys at five o'clock are getting the same uh, pay as the guys who are here very early in the morning, but also another key here is that God's generosity is what's going on, is, is the only thing that's giving them any pay whatsoever. He says, are you envious because I am generous? Well, just like in Romans 9, God's generosity in, in reaching the Gentiles with the gospel and with his service is God's generosity. It's God's grace to the Gentiles. And he says, who are you to question me if I want to extend the gospel to the Gentiles? This was my plan before I even called Abram. This is what Israel was meant to do. They were meant to be my elect nation, my chosen nation that would be a blessing to the whole world. But them being his chosen nation does not mean that they're chosen and automatically saved. What it means is that Israel is elect to be saved. Israel is elect to share the gospel, to uh, be in charge of the temple worship services. They receive the law. And as Paul says in Romans, this very same book, the law should have showed Israel how in need of a savior they were, just like it shows us that very same thing. Yes, the law is good. Yes, the law instructs. Yes, the law, we need to try to keep it the best we can. Um, speaking to Israel right now, and, and us in a way, but, but the idea is that the law should show you that you are a sinner and that you need salvation. You need a savior. And so this is what the Jews should have done. They, should, they were elect, and that election was not in and of itself salvation. The election should have led to salvation, but what they were missing was faith. And we're going to see that in the next parable, but there's one more thing I wanted to point out here. 
when you read the very next verses, um, the, the next paragraph, verses 17 through 19, when Jesus warns of his death, I actually think this is very important and easily missed. So in verses 17 through 19, he says, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way he took the twelve aside, and he said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So I do not think, remember, when Matthew's writing his gospel, he's writing it to the Jews, but also he's writing it not necessarily in chronological order, uh, but he's writing it in discourses. There are five major discourses in the book of Matthew. So it's not necessarily chronological, though much of it is, uh, especially when you get toward the Passion. But his intention is to divide the book into discourses, into specific teachings. And so uh, when you get to verses 17 through 19, I think this is really important. Right after he says in the last parable, are you envious because of God's generosity? What does he say here? This is a really important detail. He says, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Who are they? Jews, right? The chief priests and the teachers of the law are Jews. They will condemn him to death. The Jews are going to condemn Jesus to death. What does he say in the very next verse, 19? And they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. So we have, just like in Romans 9 through 11, you have both the Jews and the Gentiles who are responsible for killing Christ. Who do the Jews and the Gentiles make up? Everybody, right? Everyone who isn't a Jew is a Gentile. So both the Jews and the Gentiles are responsible for killing Jesus, for crucifying Christ. And so therefore, neither of them deserve anything. It's just because of God's generosity, because of God's grace. That's the reason that they receive what they receive. That's the reason salvation has come to them. The gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, has come to them. And so they didn't get this because they deserved it. Neither of them deserved it. Neither of them could have deserved it. They both are responsible for killing Jesus, and we're symbolically responsible for killing him as a result of our sin. But he still is generous to both of them, and he still is gracious to both of them, and extends salvation, extends the gospel to them. So now let's look at Matthew uh, 22, and this is going to be the parable of the wedding banquet. This is another very important parable for this topic, and this is where we're going to kind of start to get more uh, specifically into election or choice. He says it at the end of the, uh, the chapter here, the last verse. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read verse 14. This is Matthew 22, but I'm going to read verse 14 before I read the whole parable, which is 1 through 14. So verse 14, you've probably heard this. In the ESV, it says, for many are called, but few are chosen. And then in the NIV, it says, for many are invited, but few are chosen. So many are called, but few are chosen. Now, this is classically used as a, uh, as a Calvinist verse to say that, well, see, God only chooses certain people to be saved uh, and, and the rest are neglected. But we're going to read this whole parable, and we're going to see what he's actually saying here because there is context that I think matters a lot. He says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. 
He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited, the Jews here in this situation, did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find, the Gentiles primarily. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited but few are chosen. So what's going on here, right? In the big picture, let's start defining the characters in this parable and what's sort of going on. You have first him inviting uh, these people to the banquet and they refuse to come. Well, that's Israel. That I think that's pretty clear in this analogy. He, he's inviting them to the banquet. They're refusing to come. And then um, he, he reaches out a second time, even after they refuse. He sends more servants or more prophets or more messengers. And he says, listen, tell them this is, this is just an awesome dinner, okay? The oxen, the fattened calf or fattened cattle, they're, they've been butchered. They're all ready to go. Everything's ready. They're going to come get a big, fat, like juicy steak. It's going to be great. Come to the wedding banquet. And this time, this time when God reaches out, not only do they not come, but now they kill the servants, well, just like they killed the prophets, right? Okay, so now we, we go on, we have that part, and now we have in uh, the paragraph starting with verse 8, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. They rejected what God had given them. They rejected God's invitation. So then he says, go to the street corners, invite everybody you can find. And so that he, he's, going out, he's going out now and just inviting anybody he can grab, anyone he can find, and they, on the other hand, all come. And we see this throughout the New Testament. If we have time to look at Acts 13, we're going to see the same thing too. When he goes out and finds the Gentiles, when he goes out and finds the people on the street corners, well, they come to the wedding, even though the other guys didn't, even though they refused the invitation. Um, and now there's a key here, again, in verse 11, to understanding who the chosen or the elect are. So he says, but when the king came in to see the guests... He noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes, and he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And because the guy couldn't answer, he didn't have an answer. He was kicked out. Well, this is the key to the parable, and this is what we have to understand. Who is the man that doesn't have the wedding clothes, and why is he not chosen? So the chosen are the people in the wedding who accepted the invitation and who are at the wedding with the wedding garments, with the wedding clothes. That much is clear. The guy who doesn't have the wedding clothes is the guy who who was not permitted into the wedding. He, he was thrown out of the wedding because he didn't have the wedding clothes. Well, interestingly enough, in ancient weddings, the host of the wedding would provide wedding clothes and they would actually not only be worn in, in honor of him, but they would also be part of the decorations. 
Um, this actually still happens in the Middle East today. And actually, in some ways, it happens in America, too. It's almost kind of like uh, anytime I've been to a wedding, it's like, hey, go to Men's Warehouse and get this specific color tuxedo we have um, over there. So just go pick it up and get fitted or whatever. But you wear the specific color tuxedo. Or if you're a woman, it's like, go get the specific uh, bridal gown or dress or whatever. Um, and so you go and you get this matching stuff. And it's kind of like you're part of the decorations, too. But it's the same thing to a more to more extreme uh, version in the ancient Middle East. And so they didn't wear, in this case, the clothing that the host would have supplied. They came in and said, oh, no, I'm coming in my own clothing. I'm not coming in your garments. Well, the garment that they should have been wearing in this parable is faith. They did not show up clothed in the righteousness of Christ, in the righteous garments of Christ. They came clothed in their own righteousness. Now, the parable doesn't explicitly tell us whether this person was a Jew or Gentile. Um, It it doesn't break it down that far. But what it does tell us is that this person was not there by faith. This, This person was not wearing the right garments. In other words, was not wearing the righteousness of Christ. He didn't come by faith. And this, again, is the situation in Romans 9 through 11. Uh, where the Jews are trying to obtain righteousness through works of the law, through these privileges they've been given, rather than using these privileges to look to God and to have faith in him, to have faith in Christ, who they've rejected. Those things that they were given should have led to faith in Christ, but instead they tried to pursue righteousness uh, through the law and through their own means. They wore their own garment to the wedding, and they're not allowed in because of that. So they should have been clothed in faith. The ones who were clothed in faith are the ones who are welcome into the wedding. So in verse 14, when it says many are invited or called and few are chosen, the ones who are chosen are the ones who have faith. So God chose those who have faith to be saved. That's his decision. His decision is those who have put their faith in Christ are those who were saved, and those who are saved are those who were predestined to receive eternal life. They're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. They are predestined to be holy and blameless. They are predestined to receive every spiritual blessing. Um, We did an episode on that too, but the chosen are the ones who have faith in Jesus Christ. So again, we see another, I think, commonly misunderstood passage from Matthew 22, but when you read the whole parable, it kind of just explains itself when you read it in context, I think. So before we get into the second Timothy passage on election, uh, which is one of the most commonly used um, passages on election to describe election being elect to salvation irresistibly um, that I've heard. Now, I'll actually link a video if you want to watch it of John Piper using this passage down below and he explains that view pretty clearly. So I'm not I'm not making this up. I'm not strawmanning anybody. You can watch that if you want. Um, and, it, and it's a really good example of what I am directly disagreeing with. So I'll put that down on the description below. We'll get to the second Timothy passage in a minute. But first, I just wanted to touch on a passage from Acts 27, uh, because this is a passage that also helps us sort of understand the big picture of what's going on here again with the Jews and the Gentiles in the book of Romans and the churches of Rome. So this again kind of shows the big picture of what's going on that Paul's talking about there. He, he talks about the stuff all over the place and once you start looking for it, you see it. Uh, it's kind of like when I, it's kind of like before I bought a house or was looking for a house, it was like, 
I, I probably drove by for sale signs all the time and just never noticed and never cared. But once you're looking for a house, all of a sudden you see every for sale sign in the world. It's kind of it's kind of like that. Once you start looking for things in Scripture, you start to see them everywhere. Uh, but this is another part in uh, that we can reference in Acts 27. We can look at, well, let's start at verse 26. <clears throat> he says, quoting Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be... You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, in turn, and I would heal them. So before we read verse 28, um, you, you have God speaking to the Jews, saying, well, they're hearing, but they're not understanding. They see, but they're not perceiving. We'll get into that in Romans 9 through 11 as well, because Paul um, uses a passage. Actually, I think he might even use this one, um, but we'll get into that later. The idea here is that Israel is <clears throat> is refusing God's invitation. He, they're refusing God's calling. They're refusing to put faith in him and to be faithful to him, even though they've been given everything they've been given. Um, And when I say Israel, I'm speaking broadly because of the idea of corporate election, but it's not all of Israel. Um, Remember that in in Romans 10, basically they're like, well, does that mean God has rejected all the Jews? And Paul's like, no, I'm a Jew. And and God has reserved 7,000 for himself who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And that was back during the time of Elijah. So how about now? Um, So it's it's not as if all Jews were unfaithful, but a majority of them were. So that's the idea here. They didn't want to understand. They didn't want to trust God. And so we get to verse 28, and he says, Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation, the gospel, has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. So this is what we're seeing in Romans 9 through 11, where basically the the Jews are saying, well, God's gospel has been sent to the Gentiles. That's not fair. And Paul's basically like, well, who are you to question God? And that's what I think is so misunderstood. I think we take that and we sort of import this meaning of salvation into it as though it's saying, God save this person and not you too bad. And they're saying, well, that's not fair. And he's saying, well, who are you to talk back to God? I don't think that's what's happening. I think that the God's service, I think his service, and I think therefore his salvation, his gospel is going to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are receiving it. And let's just go look real quick at Acts 13. We're not going to get into this deeply, but I just it, it has a lot to do with this. They're receiving the gospel when God's own people that he had nurtured for thousands of years are rejecting the gospel. And so here in Acts 13, <clears throat> we have what I think is another very misunderstood verse. Look at verse 48. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, we'll back up in a second, always. Uh, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now, if we just read this verse without any other context around it, sure, somebody might say, well, obviously, God chose them to be saved, and therefore they were saved. There's nothing that anyone could do about it. They were chosen to be saved. They were saved. That's all there is to it. But there's other verses here. That's not the only verse here. When we read around this, let's back up to, um, let's back up to verse forty. We won't read the whole chapter because I said we were going to be quick on this part. But in verse forty, he says, "Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you." And he's talking to the Jews. You can read the whole chapter if you want. He's he's, t- he's talking to the Jews. He says, "Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you." 
As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, and when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it. That's a key. They brought them the invitation, but since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So what's going on here? The Jews have rejected the gospel. They have rejected the word of the Lord from Paul and Barnabas, but the Gentiles, on the other hand, have received it. The Gentiles and the Jews were both appointed. They were both given the gospel. They were both given the word of God, but the Jews rejected it again as the Gentiles received it. And as we saw this quotation in verse 47, he says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And that's what they're doing here. And it's successful with the Gentiles, but it isn't successful with the Jews. And when you go down, um, they, they try to continue and the same sort of thing keeps happening. And it says they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. So it's not they were appointed to the gospel, therefore they believed. But it's that they were appointed to the gospel and they believe. All of those who were appointed for eternal life believed in contrast to the Jews uh, who didn't believe. Not all the Jews. Remember, even early in the chapter, we saw some Jews who were faithful. Um, but, the, but the large bulk of them were angry and rejecting, rejecting their creator. So you see this tension that Paul's mentioning in Romans 9 through 11, where the Jews are, are jealous, they're upset, they're saying, well, this isn't fair that God is giving this stuff to them. They just got here at five o'clock. We've been here all day. Or uh, they didn't deserve this. We're the ones who are supposed to be uh, guarding the gospel and the law and the temple and so on and so forth. How come they get all of these privileges that are supposed to be ours? And God says, who are you to question me? <laughs> who, are, who are you to question my generosity? Who are you to question what I do with my money, with my gospel, with my service? Um, they have no place to question that, and neither do we. So, as I said, let's go to the Second Timothy 2 passage, because this is one of the most commonly used. And as I said, um, let me actually write this down so I don't forget, but I will link the John Piper video down in the description. And again, it's a video of what I disagree with, but I want you to be able to hear it just from him, not just from me. So go ahead and listen to it. And if you listen to his video and you say, oh, Nick, he's right and you're wrong, well, then send me an email and tell me. That's fine. We can disagree. Um, but I, I don't want to straw man anybody, and he is, he is one of the most well-known Calvinists of our lifetime, so go ahead and click that video if you want to check it out. Um, but let's go to Second Timothy 2, and we will go... Um, so the verse we're going to look at is verse 10. So let me read verse 10 first. And again, this is, this is ESV. He says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So that's verse 10. Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain salvation. 
Now, as you'll see if you do watch the Piper video, um, how this is commonly interpreted in a, a Calvinistic framework is that, well, we don't know who the elect are, and so we have to preach the gospel to everybody because we don't know who's been elect. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, I, I'm just going to paraphrase, but he basically said something like, if the elect could be stamped with a sign and I could know who they were, then I would only preach to them. That's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Highly disagree with that quote, but he's one of my favorite preachers nonetheless. Um, and so that that's the view. The view is that, well, Paul has to suffer uh, he has to suffer everything for the sake of those who are elect, the ones who have been chosen for salvation to the neglect of the ones who haven't been chosen. He has to suffer for them. Um, it kind of gets into, in my opinion, a contradiction because if God has irresistibly a- elected them, well, then nothing's going to stop it. And so uh, you don't you don't have to preach the gospel. Who cares? But again, I don't want to straw man Calvinists because they wouldn't say that. They would say, well, no, we have to preach the gospel because we're commanded to and we don't know who we're elect. I personally think it's sort of a logical contradiction, but uh, nonetheless, they do preach the gospel. So there's no reason to divide. There's no reason to um, separate from one another when we both believe in sharing the gospel regardless. That's, that's the end result. Um, but he says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. In that framework, the elect is those who are chosen to be saved irresistibly. The problem with that view, again, is that it's imported into the text. There's nothing in this text that would make you think that. And in fact, I'll show you what I think it really means uh, in regard to the context. Let's just start. I mean, you can read the whole chapter, but let's just start at uh, verse 8. He says, remember when Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. So just pause real quick. What what point do you think he's making here? The point he's making is he, he's appealing to the Jews. He says, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. And then it says, this is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. So let's pause again. Where is Paul when he's writing this? Well, he tells us right here, he's chained, he's in prison, okay? So he is in prison, he is chained like a criminal. Why is he in prison? Well, he's in prison in Rome, more than likely. This is probably the last book uh, that he had ever written. So he is in Rome, he is in prison, and the reason he's in prison in Rome is because of the riots at Ephesus and Acts and the Jews sending him to be tried. Uh, And so it's the Jews who sent him off to be arrested once again, which happened many times. So he's in prison as a result of the Jews sending him off to be imprisoned. Well, now we get to verse 10 and he says, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Do you see what's going on here? Once again, the elect are Israel, God's ethnic Israel. They're the ones who are elect. They're the ones Paul is referring to. He's basically saying, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the Jews, the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, the salvation that they're rejecting. But he's going to suffer for his people. Now, if you want to interpret scripture with scripture, where does that sound familiar from? Where, where do we hear that sa- almost that same verse? It's not the same exact wording, but we see that same verse somewhere in Romans 9. Look at the beginning of Romans 9 in verse 3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. 
it's almost the same verse. It's it's the same exact concept. There's no reason to import some meaning into the into the chapter that just comes pretty much out of nowhere about election meaning that these people are chosen to be saved and these people are neglected. He's talking about Israel. He's saying, simply put, there, there's no mysticism here. There's no difficult layers to get by. Okay, there's no, like, you have to understand this, this, and this framework from this guy in order to be able to interpret this. It literally just says, I endure everything for the sake of my people. I endure everything for the sake of Israel so that they'll be saved too. So that they'll see the way I act toward them. They'll see the way I'm patient. They'll see my long suffering. They'll see my love for them. And hopefully that will lead them to repentance and salvation through Jesus Christ by faith. That's what he's saying here. He is providing a Christ-like example to his people. And his people are the ones who have locked him up. His people are the ones who have rejected the Messiah and who have chained him uh, as a criminal in prison. So that's what's going on in 2 Timothy 2. And as I said, I'll link the Piper uh, video down in the description. Watch it. Watch it and tell me if you disagree. It's literally just like a made-up imported meaning in the text that I just don't think has any place in this chapter. It doesn't seem to go along with, with anything. It just seems like if you read that verse and nothing else, it's like, oh yeah, I can see how that would be a Calvinist interpretation. But if you actually read the context and do a little bit of digging, it's like, I just don't think that's what's going on. This is pretty much the same thing we see at the start of Romans 9. So let's look at two more uh, passages quickly, and these are both going to be from Peter, Peter the Apostle, I mean. Uh, so one of them is going to be from Second Peter, uh, and this is one that we reference in one of our other videos, so I just wanted to bring it up as a reminder. We're in verse 10. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he says, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Well, the term election here can't mean chosen to be saved irresistibly to the neglect of others. It can't mean that because if it does, and the passage says, make every effort to confirm you're calling an election, well, that would make you a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. That would have you end up with a a works-based gospel. And so election here is election to service, election to ministry. Election should lead to salvation. So he says, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, the calling and the ch- choice or the election that God had given you. Because if you do that, you will never stumble and you'll be welcome into God's kingdom or to the wedding banquet. Well, when he says, therefore, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, right before he tells us how to do that, essentially through faithfulness to God. He says, for this very reason, in verse 5, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to your goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, uh, and to perseverance godliness. But what does he start with? Before we get in this whole chain um, of of spiritual disciplines that the Christian is to do, in verse 5, he starts with what? Faith. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness to goodness knowledge, and he goes on. So it starts with faith. Confirm your election through faith and through faithfulness to God. Um, And as I said, we we had 
covered this a little bit in the episode we did. Uh, I think it was the first episode on Romans 9, so um, I'm not going to go too far into it. I just wanted to remind you of this passage because it's, I think, pretty important to the discussion on election. Uh, but I did want to get to a passage from First Peter, and this is a pretty easy one to find. It's the first verse in First Peter. <clears throat> So 1 Peter, I'm reading from the NIV again, uh, as I'd mentioned, but this is from 1 Peter chapter 1, and this is verse 1. We'll read verse 1 and 2. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. So we have another chain here that sort of needs to be broken down. But what we see first is what? Who is this written to? To God's elect, his exiles scattered. Who are his exiles? Who are his elect exiles? The Jews, right? God's elect exiles are the Jews who have been scattered in these different regions. And it's actually really cool when you think about it, because you not only have the scattering after uh, Assyria, after Babylon, but God uses these events to scatter his his people and to spread the gospel. So think about um, in Acts at Pentecost, and this is just a side note, by the way, but at Pentecost, what happens? All of these Jews are here to celebrate. They're from all over the known uh, the known world at the time. And they go and bring the gospel back to all of their regions. So God uses these exiled people to do wonderful things, to spread his gospel to not only the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to the nations who he is gathering back to himself, the nations who were disinherited at Babel all the way back in Genesis 11. So he's writing here to God's elect exiles, to the Jewish people who have been scattered. If you don't believe me, who who is Peter? Who is Peter? According to Paul in uh, Galatians two eight, Peter is the apostle to the Jews. Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter is the apostle to the Jews, to the apostle the apostle to the circumcised. So he's writing here to the Jewish Christians who have been scattered. The other Jews who are not Christians aren't too fond of these guys. Okay, they're not treating them very nicely. Um, so he's writing to the. Jewish Christians who have been scattered. So now with that in mind, we read verse two that says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, uh, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. So those who have been chosen are going to receive these things. Those who have been chosen, in other words, those who have put their faith in Christ, who have responded to God's election as his elect people, well, they're going to be sanctified. The process of sanctification is the process of being made holy. Uh, So when you go to your church and you have a place called the sanctuary where you worship, the idea of a sanctuary is a place that's set apart, comes from the term holy. And so sanctification is the process of being set apart from sin. It's the process of being made holy. So those who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, who knows everything, are those who have put their faith in Christ, and those who put their faith in Christ are being made holy, they're being sanctified, they're going to become obedient to Jesus Christ, they're being conformed to his image, and they're sprinkled with his blood. These are all things that those who are in Christ were received, just like we saw in the predestination episode um, in Ephesians 1 and in Romans 8. If you are a Christian, you will receive these things. Well, here he is writing to um, 
he's writing to these Jewish Christians and in reminding them and encouraging them. And of course, First Peter is where the famous apologetics passage comes from in verse three or chapter three, verse fifteen. Uh, but what's really going on here is there's a lot of persecution. There's a lot of need to be confident in defending your faith. There's a lot of need uh, to be prepared to live as a Christian, to set an example. So before we wrap this up, let's look back at uh, Romans 9 one more time, and we'll just just look at the term elect here. Um, We see the first paragraph talking about the Jewish people and about the privileges that they received uh, that should have pointed them to Christ. Uh, We see Paul, who is willing to even lose his own salvation for God's elect, for his own countrymen, his kinsmen, uh, the the Israelites, the ethnic Israelites. And then we have the term election in, in verse 11. So in verse 11, he says, Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, that's Jacob and Esau, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, and just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So hopefully that term election there in verse 11 makes a little bit more sense now, having seen other biblical examples. Um, hopefully now understanding that when Israel is elect and is elected by God, chosen by God, they are chosen to be a blessing to all other nations, not to the neglect of all other nations or people. Um, and this term is not used, meaning Israel has been uh, saved irresistibly, but that they have been chosen and they have been given these privileges to be God's people who would bring about the Messiah. And this election and these privileges should have led to salvation for the Jewish people. And we'll touch on uh, Romans eleven twenty eight once we get a little bit further into the series. Uh, but in, a Ro- in Romans eleven twenty eight, we see the same thing where he says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. So you see that election is not referring to salvation here. It's referring to service. Well, they still are the descendants of the patriarchs, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. They've rejected the gospel. They've rejected faith. Uh, but they are still, of course, elect in a certain sense because they were chosen for God's service to bring about the Messiah. And now that the Messiah is here, God has brought in the other nations in order to make the Jews, Israel, his chosen people envious. Um, So if you have any questions or disagreements or whatever it may be, send them to information at apologetics.org. That's information at apologetics.org. And either I'll email you back or we'll address it or both. Uh, We'll address it on the Q&A at the end of the month of June, uh, the last Friday of the month. So send in your questions and I will be looking forward to continuing the series on Romans 9 through 11 uh, next Monday at 6 p.m. I hope you have a blessed week and we'll see you back here next Monday.